This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. This is Alan Pierce. I'm with the law firm of Pierce Pierce and Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts, where we handle workers' compensation claims. Our guest today is a friend and colleague, somebody I've known for many years, William Troop. Bill is an attorney. He has his own firm, the Troop Law Office in Peabody, Massachusetts, and for most, if not all, of his career, he has represented injured workers and their families, both in workers' compensation and Social Security disability cases. Bill is a graduate of the University of Massachusetts. He has a law degree from Suffolk University Law School. He has had extensive experience in various capacities for various bar associations and their workers' compensation committees or sections. He is a frequent lecturer on issues relating to workers' compensation and Social Security disability, and he was recently inducted as a fellow in the College of Workers' Compensation Lawyers. Bill, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, why don't we get right to the topic. What is Social Security Disability? How does uh, somebody qualify for it? And what is its relationship to workers' compensation? Well, Social Security Disability is a benefit that was set up by the federal government. Uh, I believe it goes back to the mid-60s. And it can provide uh, monthly benefits for those people who qualify. Uh, and basically, the monthly benefit is essentially what that person would be getting if they were on full retirement age. So it can be fairly substantial. It can be over $2,000 a month. But to get it, you have to have enough work history, which we can go into in a bit, and you also have to have a condition which is going to totally disable you for any form of substantial gainful activity, not just your old job, but any type of work, and it has to be expected to last, or already has lasted, one year. So 11 months of disability won't work. So at what point does a person qualify for Social Security disability? Is it payable from the date of injury or date of disability, or is there a waiting period? There is a five-month waiting period. So if someone became disabled on January 1st of a, of a given year, uh, their month of first entitlement, which is a term of art in Social Security, would be the 1st of June of that year because there's a five-month waiting period. Now, during that five-month period, could the person apply for benefits to begin five months later, or is it uh, preferable to wait the five months and then apply? You could apply right away, but my advice to my clients is that I usually tell them to wait seven or eight months because if you apply too early, unless it's a real catastrophic injury, they will probably turn you down because they, say, they will say that you probably don't have a condition which will last a year. So I usually have clients wait seven or eight months. But bear in mind that an application is retroactive for up to one year prior to your filing date. So considering the five-month waiting period, you could actually file 17 months after the beginning of your disability and still not lose any retroactive benefits. Okay, so that in the case of somebody who filed 17 months after a disability and were awarded the benefits, it would be retroactive a year prior to the date they applied. That's correct. Now, you mentioned a work history. I know from my own experience, generally there are two major factors 
that would tell me whether my client would be eligible. One would be, as you mentioned, a disability that would be expected to last a year or more. What other requirements in terms of the amount of time you needed to work? There were two main tests uh, and then a couple of smaller ones. But the, first, the main two tests are you have to have, most people have to have at least 40 quarters of work history. That's 10 years. And you also have to have five out of the last 10 years to qualify. For example, if you worked 25 years ago for 10 years straight and then became disabled now, 25 years later, you wouldn't qualify because even though you have 40 quarters, you didn't have them recently. So you have to be fully insured 40 quarters and what they call currently insured five out of the last 10 years. And if my math is correct, you need 20 quarters out of the last 40 quarters. Yeah, that's correct. That's to get you currently insured. So somebody who may not be currently insured because he or she did not have 20 quarters in the last 10 years at full retirement age, nevertheless, would get the retirement benefit because they were fully insured years ago. That's correct, they would. And we run into these situations primarily with people who are currently injured, but they are not in the Social Security arena when they're injured. They may be workers who are covered under some federal program, or they may be state or municipal employees who pay into a, a pension program, and there are pension benefits and disability pension benefits, but not Social Security benefits. Yeah, that happens. And uh, I can think of one case recently where I had a client who we got on workers' comp. He was an employee for a town near Boston, and he only worked for the town for four years. So uh, in addition to getting him approved for a disability pension through the town's retirement system, I also got him approved for Social Security disability because he still had five out of the last ten years. I mean, he, he just got in. He had worked in the system steadily under Social Security up till four years prior to the date of injury with the town. All right. So that, that gets us into another issue. I want to come back to how does somebody apply for Social Security and what's the process. But let's take that example. Your, your client is getting workers' comp benefits of a percentage of his or her pay. Usually in Massachusetts, it's 60%. A disability retirement in Massachusetts is 72%, but it's offset by the workers' comp, so you would get 12% from the pension, the disability pension from the municipality. Now this person qualifies for Social Security disability, the third type of benefit. What is or what is not offset in that Situation. Well, the, the workers' comp could very well be offset from Social Security. The retirement benefit that they're getting, uh, I mean, excuse me, their disability retirement benefit they would be getting from the city or town would not affect their Social Security disability, I don't believe. I know if they were on Social Security retirement, there is a program in Social Security called the Windfall Elimination uh, Provision, WEP that says they look at both benefits, the Social Security retirement and the, and the disability retirement from a city or a state, and you cannot get both in full unless you have, and this is getting a little technical, I believe it's 30 years of substantial income under Social Security. So, for example, if a person worked for a city or a town making good money, uh, but they also had 30 years of a great part-time job or summer earnings, that got them up to what Social Security says is, quote-unquote, substantial earnings. And right now, that's about $30,000 a year. So uh, sometimes when they go to retire, they could get their full Social Security retirement and their full 
pension from the city or town uh, without effect. But that windfall elimination provision, just like it sounds, is to prevent windfalls in a lot of cases. Which underscores uh, really the necessity to seek out an expert in this area, such as Bill or wherever your particular jurisdiction is, because laws vary from state to state as far as offset from workers' comp and, and Social Security. But when we have these various interrelated disability programs at the state or municipal level, at the federal level, and then, of course, the workers' comp, which is generally through private insurance, there are offsets that apply, offsets that don't apply, and I don't want to further complicate this show, but there are also many of our clients who qualify for long-term disability, and there are offsets there. So you sometimes when I have a client come in, if I don't have a blackboard handy, I'll take some legal pads, and all you'll see are arrows uh, and pluses and minus signs because figuring out what the bottom line is can be very difficult. So having said all that, what is the process for applying for Social Security Disability? I know there's an application process. What are the, the steps? Well, uh, it used to be that you filed in paper. In fact, years ago, when I first started practicing back in the 70s, I actually would fill out the paperwork in my office for the client, or we had secretaries who could do the paperwork. But now, they either do it one of two ways. You either call up your Social Security office, go down and visit, and make an appointment to come back, because they won't usually see you the same day. Make an appointment to come back in person and let them fill out the paperwork while they interview you in the office. For most of my clients who do not have computers, that's usually the way to go, uh, because really there's not as much heavy lifting for the client doing it that way. The other way right now is to do it online. Uh, and you would go to www.ssa.gov, and there's a uh, a link that would lead you to applying for benefits. And when you get there, it'll say disability or retirement, and you can do it all online. But I've had clients tell me they spent four or five hours doing it. But you can pause it and come back. So you can, one of two ways, in person at the office or online. Before we take a break, let's clear up a, a frequently misunderstood uh, concept that I get almost every time when a client applies for Social Security Disability, and that is the differentiation between Social Security Disability, which the acronym would be SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance, and SSI, which is Supplemental Security Income, sounds similar. The initials are similar. They both come out of the Social Security Administration, and a lot of times the Social Security, uh, when you apply in person, or online, they will apply for both, even though one of them clearly will not apply. So why don't you give us a quick 30-second, one-minute differentiation between SSDI and SSI? Okay, number one, SSI is a more modest benefit. The most you can get from, for SSI is usually about seven or $800 a month. For SSD, you can get up to $2,500 a month if you have significant earnings. But the big Reason They both use the same disability test. The tests are the same as to the degree of disability needed to qualify for both SSI and SSDI. But most people who apply for SSI uh, and get that rather than Social Security Disability Insurance, it's because they do not have enough work history. They, or their work history was so distant in the past that they don't have current insurance for Social Security Disability. So they are unfortunately going to be relegated to just SSI, which can be substantially less than the monthly benefit for Social Security Disability. And there's one other important distinction. There is a needs test for SSI. So that if, tell us what the threshold is, because 
if you have workers' comp benefits or if you have a certain level of assets, you don't qualify for SSI no matter how disabled you are. Right. You can be approved for SSI and they'll find you medically disabled enough for it, but if you have income or assets in the bank, bank accounts, uh, uh, investments, uh, IRAs, that can ruin it. There is an asset test uh, on SSI cases. Uh, as far as the income levels, I can't speak exactly what it is, uh, but I know if you had over probably $1,200 a month in income coming in from any source, that will totally rule out SSI benefits. But you may still get Medicare coverage, which could be important to some people. Even though they might not get monthly benefit, they may still be get medical coverage from the government. All right. And one last question before we break. If you qualify for Social Security disability, and you're 35 years old, 45 years old, clearly under 65 or 66, the normal retirement age. Medicare coverage kicks in, but when does it kick in? There's a two-year wait to get Medicare. Uh, if you qualify for Social Security disability, uh, you have to be uh, in, on benefit status for two years before your Medicare coverage will kick in. So essentially with the two-year waiting, uh, five-month waiting period, it's about two and a half years, and then you'll be qualified for Medicare, which is very cheap and fairly good insurance. All right. With that, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion regarding Social Security disability and workers' compensation. And we're also going to test Bill with uh, our case of the day. So we'll be right back. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters. My guest is Bill Troop. We've been talking about the interrelationship between Social Security disability benefits and workers' compensation benefits. Bill, probably the most frequent area that we need to be aware of is when one of our clients is on workers' compensation and then qualifies for Social Security disability. I know that Social Security will offset the workers' compensation benefits. Could you explain the formula for that offset, whether it's a dollar-for-dollar dollar offset or how exactly does Social Security compute how much they're going to lower the benefit because of workers' compensation. Yeah, the offset provisions for Social Security are found in uh, 20 CFR 404.408. That's the regulation book for Social Security disability. And what it says is there, uh, you cannot get more than uh, between what workers' comp is paying and what Social Security is going to finally send you than 80% of what they call your ACE. ACE stands for Average Current Earnings. And the way you get the ACE figure is you look at the person's last, well, the year of injury, how much he earned during the year of injury and the five preceding years. You take the one highest year during that period, almost, five, almost six years in some cases, and you divide it by 12 to get a monthly, 
and then you uh, take 80% of that, and that gives you 80% ACE, and that gives you the upper limit between what workers' comp is paying and what Social Security disability will pay. And I have an example. Let's just say a person's high year of income was 65000 You divide that by 12 and then take 80%, and that gives you an 80% ACE figure of $4,333. The person's workers' comp on a weekly basis is $800 a week. Multiplying that times four and a third, because there's actually a little over four weeks in every month except February leap year or whatever, uh, you get $3,464. And if you take $3,464 away from the $4,333, that leaves you $869. And that is what Social Security will pay because of the Social Security Workers' Comp offset. And that person's full Social Security could very well have been, if he had or he or she had some children, could be over $2,200 a month. So you can see they're not getting $2,200. They're going to get $869. And uh, that could go up with cost of living adjustments from Social Security, but uh, they're being in. They're in a substantial offset situation. They're losing uh, what fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars a month. Okay. So they're getting approximately uh, eight hundred dollars a month. Mm-hmm. And generally, my experience is it works out. Usually, the offset is usually the equivalent of one week of workers' comp benefits, just because of the math. Yeah. Well, in that in that example, it did. Yeah. Now, let's say the workers' compensation benefit is lowered. The person uh, is placed on partial disability benefits, mm-hmm. and that eight hundred dollar a week. Workers' comp benefit goes down to $500 a week, which is $300 a week times 4.3, which is 12 to 1400 a month less workers' comp. Yep. How much will Social Security go up? It would go up to the maximum amount. Well, it, it will go up a, a, as much uh, as possible so that you never exceed that $4,333 amount. So if a person goes on partial... They go down $200 a week. Their Social Security should go up $200 a week. Yeah. And of course, Social Security plays monthly, so it would be 4.3 times 200. Right. Okay. I think we all understand that. The next question that always arises, because in workers' compensation cases, in many jurisdictions, you can make a settlement with the insurance company. The insurance company is buying out of their projected future months, years of weekly workers' comp payments in exchange for a lump sum of benefits. So I have a lot of clients come to me and say, if I accept a lump sum settlement, will I lose my Social Security? And I know what the answer is, and Bill, why don't you tell us what the formula is when that happens? Well, you don't lose your Social Security uh, just because you settled your compensation case. Uh, And what we do is Social Security, under the uh, rules and regulations in 20 CFR, has the right to what they call prorate a settlement into the future so that if a person was getting $1,000 a week in comp, they could prorate a settlement out at $1,000 a week and leave the person still at that very low or offset Social Security rate. In other words, they would take the gross lump sum or the net lump sum, the amount the client gets. Let's say the client gets $100,000 and his comp rate is $1,000 a week. It would be for the next 100 weeks Correct. or almost two years, the Social Security would be reduced. Right. But there's a trick yeah. that to get that raised immediately, and it's really not a trick. It comes from Social Security's own regulations. 
Right. There was a case uh, some years ago, a man named Sherada down in New Jersey, I believe, had a very bright lawyer who said that in reality, this settlement is representing benefits that could be payable to the injured employee during his extended lifespan. Because workers' comp can go on for the life of the injured worker. It doesn't stop at 65 or some other artificial date. So Social Security does recognize the fact that if a person settles the comp case, you are allowed to prorate that settlement over the life expectancy of the injured worker. So in your example where the person got $100,000, and let's just say they had a 25-year life expectancy, that would be about $4,000 a year. All right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's about $80 a week. So if you put that $80 a week benefit into the computation, multiply 80 times 4 and a third, you're going to get about $1,000 a month. And that's not going to reduce, in, in my example I gave earlier, the client's uh, Social Security. They're going to get their full Social Security and they've got their lump sum money up front. But because of the Sharada case, uh, his Social Security will be bumped up, and it will. It does work. It works like a charm every time I've done it. Yeah. And the important thing for any of you out there contemplating settling your case, uh, make sure you have an attorney who understands the language that has to be included in the settlement papers with the workers' comp insurance company. We call it the Sharada language. It basically says that this settlement is apportioned over the claimant's life expectancy, and therefore it is equivalent to, in this case, $80 a week for 25 years, keeping in mind the client doesn't get $80 a week, he gets the $100,000, it's just called $80 a week for Social Security purposes. Am I correct with that? Uh, absolutely, Alan, and, and it's, it's good to remember to do it up front because uh, there have been lawyers who've tried to redo the lump sum papers because they forgot it and they try to do it, uh, what do they call it, nunc pro tunc, and uh, Social Security usually picks up on that and won't qualify it. They won't uh, give consideration to the redoing of the papers. Tell us about uh, a spouse's benefit or children's benefit. You mentioned something about if the worker has children. How does Social Security provide for the family members of a disabled worker? Yeah, the uh, Social Security benefit that, are, that an injured worker gets is based on a formula somewhere in the Social Security Act. is a big chart, and they take the average earnings over the person's lifetime well, first off, they drop off the low five years, and then they average out all the rest of the year's earnings, come up with an average figure, and they look on the chart and said, this employee's entitled to $1,500 a month based on his average earnings. Now, that figure of 1500 is what the injured worker gets. If the injured worker has what they call auxiliary beneficiaries, namely young children, those children, whether you have one or ten, will split one half of the full benefit to the, of the injured worker. In my example, if the injured worker was going to get $1,500 as his PIA, which is called the primary insurance amount, the auxiliary beneficiaries will get $750. And like I said, whether there's 10 children or one children, it's all going to total up to $750. And a, a wife who is alone without minor children doesn't get that. She has to, there have to be children in the family. Is the auxiliary benefit for the children offset by workers' comp? Yeah, in fact, they're the first ones to get offset. 
that can become important if the children are living with another with the spouse and there's a separation and things like that. Uh, auxiliary beneficiaries benefits are offset first by the comp, and then if the offset is still cutting into uh, is high enough, they may cut down the injured worker's benefit himself. So I think a fair statement here is that everybody's case is different. The math works differently. The factors are how much the worker earned in five years or their best five years, how much the worker's comp is, how much the children might get, and they are all interrelated and really require somebody like Bill who has a knowledge of the statute, the regulations, federal and worker's comp, to be able to sit down and figure out what's best. For example, if you have a client who might be 62 and eligible for ordinary but reduced retirement, because of the offset provisions, are there situations that you advise somebody who's close to 62 or over 62 to forego the disability benefit and take the early retirement benefit? Yeah, that becomes, uh, it comes up many times, especially if it's a case that looks like it's not going to settle and you're not going to be able to prorate the settlement out like we talked about a minute ago. So if you have a place that's no interest in settlement and they're getting to be 62 or 3 and they're in a big offset of seven or eight, nine hundred thousand dollars a month, it makes sense to consider doing an early retirement, even though you might get less in early retirement, you'd still end up getting more, at least right up front, uh, by retiring than you would by getting an offset Social Security disability. And that's because the Social Security retirement benefit is not offset. Right. By workers' comp. Yeah, nor are widow's benefits offset. Okay. Well, if we haven't sufficiently confused our audience with that, it is really the point to make here is that there are a lot of benefits out there. Many people aren't aware of them. They're not aware of how they relate, and there's a lot of misinformation out there so that consultation with somebody, even if you're not having any problems in your workers' comp case, even if you're on Social Security disability, there are ways to look at what you are getting, cost of living adjustments under workers' comp, under Social Security. These are things we haven't talked about, but they are additional items of benefit that unless you have an intricate knowledge of how this system works, uh, you could be doing yourself a disservice by not at least uh, looking into all of this. Bill, I want to thank you for your advice and expertise. I'd like to close the show by uh, hopefully not embarrassing you, and I bet I don't because I think you're going to come up with the answer. Uh, we have a feature we do now and then on workers' comp matters called Case of the Day, and I find an interesting case, and Bill does not know about the case. Well, maybe he does if he, if he keeps up, but I'm going to describe the facts, and I'm going to ask him how he thinks the case turned out and perhaps give us the rationale. Uh, the case I'm talking about, or I'd like to talk about, took place in Illinois. It is the case of Clinton Dyer and Circuit City. And let me just give you a summary of the facts, Bill. Clint worked for Circuit City, and a co-worker came over to him and said that he had tried to buy a bag of chips out of the vending machine. And that vending machine had a history of people putting their money in, but the snacks not quite dropping out. They get caught up on the spindles of the machine. The employee who was buying the snack shook the machine to dislodge it, but nothing happened. So Clint Dwyer went over there. He shook the machine twice. No luck. And then he took a step back and he gave what the records reflect as a hockey player-like check to the machine with his shoulder. And the next thing he knew, he was on the ground with a fractured hip. He applied for workers' comp. It was bought by the workers' comp insurer for Circuit City. And tell us what you think the state workers' comp board did and why. 
Well, <laughs> not knowing anything about the uh, Illinois law, uh, I, I can't comment on for sure, but I would say in Massachusetts, uh, if the company put the vending machine there for their employees to get benefit from, you know, to supplement their breaks or lunches, and it was a malfunction, uh, it really comes down to whether it's considered horseplay, because horseplay sometimes can rule out a comp claim. I would say that they found compensability. You're right, and for the almost the correct reason, uh, and I think you alluded to the reason, Massachusetts and most jurisdictions have something called the personal comfort doctrine, and indeed the Workers' Comp Commission awarded workers' comp benefits under the personal comfort doctrine, which states that a, an employee who works full-time for an employer has to attend to his or her personal comfort going to the bathroom, lunch break, coffee break, and that an injury that occurs in the course of a personal comfort break is covered by workers' comp. But I'm going to give you a wrinkle. The workers' comp insurance company appealed to the appellate court in Illinois, and the appellate court upheld the award, but not on the personal comfort doctrine. Illinois has another doctrine. Could you think, I know I'm putting you on the spot, because I wouldn't have gotten this. Do you think, how would you think the, uh, an appellate court would have still awarded compensation in this case and not use the personal comfort doctrine? He's shaking his head. I think I stumped him. I, I was stumped. I, don't know. I, I, I was stumped too. Illinois has what's known as a Good Samaritan doctrine. And the Good Samaritan doctrine says when an employee leaves his work duties to help someone else that is in the course of his work, any injuries while helping out another employee is covered. And in this case, Circuit City had no stated policy against shaking a machine. It was foreseeable. The company knew the machine would malfunction. And that when Dwyer uh, helped his co-worker, he was acting not so much out of his personal comfort because he wasn't. It was his co-worker's personal comfort. And I think the appellate court in Illinois got it right. There would be a distinction. This was not Dwyer's personal comfort, but he was acting as a good Samaritan, not in the sense we normally think of a good Samaritan. And I think this case illustrates the unique nature of workers' compensation. First of all, there are other vending machine cases. If you get into the literature, they actually have a category of vending machine cases. And this same set of facts may not have produced this same result in Oregon or in Tennessee or in Massachusetts. Every state is different. They have Some have personal comfort doctrines. Some have exceptions. Some have exceptions for intentional misconduct. Some have don't have a good Samaritan doctrine. However, I think this Circuit City case does illustrate that workers' comp injuries are not limited to lifting the box or, uh, or moving the furniture, that you can, God love people, find ways to hurt themselves in the most unusual and unthinkable ways. I can think of a case here in Mass years ago where, uh, I can't think of the name of the case, but uh, a worker stopped his car on a big highway, or his truck actually, and there was a big coil of rope in the middle of the travel lane, and he went to remove it because he thought it was a hazard, and he got hurt. And I'm going, to, I'm going to one-up you. That was yeah. DeAngelis' case. case yeah. And that was a Liberty Mutual case. Both of us worked for Liberty Mutual. Mm -hmm. I was working for Liberty Mutual at the time that case came down. It was attorney Tom Lesperance that we both know. Yeah. But that was a Good Samaritan case. Mm -hmm. He was, in the course of his employment, he took the coil of rope or whatever out of the highway. It was Route 495, a big interstate in Massachusetts, and was struck by a car. And, uh, of course, the workers' comp insurer said he was not in the performance of his duties, and the Supreme Court 
did hold that uh, he was acting as a good Samaritan and was in the course. So good pickup on that case. It's alive and well in Massachusetts. <laughs> All right. Bill, I want to thank you for being a guest on Workers' Comp Matters. As usual, you're informative and right on top of things. And uh, those of you listening, listen to our future shows and go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.